Hello and welcome to Write Up Your Algae. I'm your co-host, Emily Dahl. And I'm Clara. It's an exciting day today, Clara. Do you know why? Um, well, it's November 4th, so no. Yeah, everyone knows how exciting the 4th of November is. No, <laughs> today is exciting because I actually have a little bit of background in today's topic. So I think that if you have some questions, I might be able to answer them a little bit better. Hmm. It does ring a bell. I think I've seen some photos of you, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, we'll definitely post some some of my serial killer looking pictures from yeah. from this job that I have. I'm I'm thinking of one in particular that we can just like zoom in on your forehead. Oh, we're <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're gonna get into it a little bit later on. But I um on my first day of the job, I happened to get some brain matter <laughs> on my face. <laughs> Don't we love that? <laughs> I thought it was really funny. (laughs) So let's put our lab coats on and learn something today. We are going to be talking about meningeal nematodes. Ooh. So in particular, we're going to be talking about Perillophostrongylus tenuis. Simply put, a nematode is a worm. And the meninges are a thin membrane that protects and surrounds the brain and spinal cord of vertebrates. So a meningeal nematode, if we can put that together, is a worm that infects the meninges. But worry not listeners, because the species we will be talking about today cannot affect humans. However, it does cause issues in some cervids. Cervids being the family that includes animals like moose, deer, reindeer, and elk. Family, how big are these nematodes? Well, in the ones that I saw, I remember I could recognize them because when I first saw it, it looked like I had thought one of my hairs had like fallen out and in and fallen into the goop I was inspecting. So that's what they kind of look like. They kind of look like just a long black, very thin hair. They can sometimes be just like a group of squiggles. There's just like a bunch of them, kind of like a little hairball. That's really cool because a lot of nematodes are like microscopic and you can't... No, you can identify this with the naked eye. Okay, that's really cool. Yeah. Can I put this? It kind of looks like you probably do this too, or maybe you don't. Maybe you're just not gross and don't do this, but when like your hair falls off in the shower Mm -hmm. and you like squiggle it up on the shower wall... Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's exactly what it looks like. (laughs) Every girl out there does it, so... (laughs) Oh, God, we're disgusting. (laughs) In eastern North America, this nematode is a big problem for moose. Scientific name, Alcas alcas. In 2003, the eastern moose, Alcas alcas americana, on mainland Nova Scotia was declared an endangered species under the Nova Scotia Endangered Species Act. I specify mainland Nova Scotia because on Cape Breton Island, moose are generally doing fine. Mm -hmm. The disease is commonly referred to as moose sickness or brainworm, although the moose, similar to most undulates, can host a variety of parasites or insects pest. Few other than P. tenuis have proven to be of serious consequence to the overall health of most populations. So let's do a little bit of a refresher on the different types of relationships in the animal kingdom. A symbiosis is a relationship between two species in which at least one benefits. Within symbiosis, there's mutualism, in which both species benefit. There's commensalism, a symbiotic relationship in which one species is unaffected while the other benefits. Lastly, there's parasitism, where one species benefits while the other is harmed. So to moose, this is a parasitic relationship. So Clara, I'm sure you've been on the edge of your seat wondering, what is the life cycle of this worm? Honestly, Emily, yes, I have been. Your prayers have been answered. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) As we've established, this nematode lives in the meninges, but when it lays eggs, these eggs will travel through the blood to the lungs. They will be aspirated or coughed up and then swallowed. These eggs will go through the digestive tract and be excreted, where terrestrial gastropods 
will contract it within its foot. Do you know what I mean when I say a gastropod's foot? Or like a mollusk's foot? No. <laughs> so like a mollusk or a gastropod, that's like snails. Yeah. So snails obviously don't have feet. Exactly. But a foot refers to a muscle that is like characteristic of gastropods. They use it for locomotion. Okay. So like you see it in clams and things like that. The, the big muscle, we call it the foot. So within this foot, the parasite will enter its larval stage. While in the gastropod stage, this parasite is very resilient and it's able to go through things like freezing and drought. Other cervids will then consume the gastropod like accidentally while like feeding on grass or leaves or things like that. And they will then contract the parasite. The parasite is very commonly contracted by white-tailed deer due largely to their diet consisting of common gastropod locations like fallen leaves. After consumed, the worm will penetrate the stomach wall and travel to the spinal cord, where it will then reach maturity and may be able to travel to the brain or to the muscles between the shoulder blades and the muscles in the hindquarters. Female worms will penetrate blood vessels to lay their eggs and thus start the whole process over again. That is like super gross. <laughs> But also very interesting. Say, for example, a moose eats grass, grass goes into them, and there's female worms already, like, on those gastropods or whatever. And then they they lay their eggs in their lungs. No, in their bloodstream. And then they go to their lungs, and then they're pooped out. And then, <laughs> and then another gastropod eats it, and then a deer <laughs> eats the gastropod. <laughs> The worms go into the deer's brain and into their lungs. And then they poop it out. This just seems like... <laughs> you've only... You've mostly got it. <laughs> but this is... This sort of like um, entering the bloodstream, entering the lungs, getting coughed up, and then getting swallowed. That is that so process, gross. That is actually very common among parasites. In like, um, I don't know if you saw in the news a little while ago, an Australian woman had a, a brain worm. It was from like carpet python larva or something or a parasite that affects carpet pythons. And it tra has the exact same route. You consume it, it enters your bloodstream, from the bloodstream goes to the lungs, you cough it up and then you eat it again. It's a strangely common, even though it sounds really convoluted, it's, a, it's how a lot of parasites it's operate. Like there's so many steps. I know, there's a lot of steps. <laughs> okay. According to Edmund Tepler, in 2004, the 20th century brought large increases in white-tailed deer to Nova Scotia, and conversely, this brought a reduction in moose population, with a particular drop-off in the 30s and 40s. This has been widely argued as a correlation, not causation relationship and that there's too many factors, including legal harvest, land loss, and disease at play to completely blame higher deer populations. A study by Upshaw et al. in 1986 proposed that it is overlaps in foraging location that causes decreases in moose population, not necessarily the population density of deers, which to me makes the most sense considering the mechanism of entry of this parasite. Mm -hmm. So like if you have, it doesn't necessarily matter that there's more deer in one location, it's when deer and moose foraging locations overlap that you have these deer that, you know, have lots of these parasites in them, are creating excrement in areas that moose are also feeding and gastropods are, you know, the whole cycle. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because there's always more complex things whenever we, like, mess with the ecosystem and just how 
I don't know, if you take one organism out of the ecosystem or introduce something into an ecosystem, then you're always going to have these cascading effects. Yeah, everything is so interconnected. It's it's so sensitive and very complex. Yeah. So how does this worm affect moose? It primarily affects neonatal moose lethally, but its impact on calves, so moose under one year of age, is still troublesome. In low-dose infections, calves will show abnormal locomotion around 20 days post-infection that progressively gets more pronounced and hind quarter weakness and front lameness will set in. After around 75 plus days, signs will diminish or disappear completely. In high-dose infections, the locomotion effects are severe and non-resolving. And in the experiment that I got this information from, these calves were euthanized rather than the researchers waiting for them to die. However, in the wild, one could assume that if a moose calf were profoundly disabled in such a way, this would provide barriers to gaining sustenance, would make them vulnerable to predation, especially in a place like Nova Scotia, where moose calves are prey items to predators like coyotes or black bears. So this worm, no good for moose, that's for sure. So you said that was like under one year of age. What happens after that? It doesn't seem like it's largely very effective to adult moose. Okay. But, you know, when you have things like moose, they their gestation period is very similar to humans, but they, they usually only have one. You know, it's one every year. Yeah. So um, even though they are a prey species, you know, they're built to be preyed upon, you know, and a lot of prey species, especially big ones like moose, will, you know, th- there's an anticipation that the juveniles are going to be preyed upon more than, you know, an adult moose. You know, when there's only one calf a year, it can be hard to reconstruct such a small population like mm-hmm. the one that we have in mainland Nova Scotia. Okay. One article that I found, this was actually talking about it, its effect on caribou. Uh, it stated lack of fear as a common symptom, which is kind of strange to think. It does have a lot of neurological effects. It's not just physical. Okay, here's my issue with that. How do they measure <laughs> the fact that these caribou have a lack of fear? This was on the government of Newfoundland, but that is a very, that's a good point you're bringing up. That's a very anthropomorphic yeah. thing to say. And like, this is something that we commonly... I, I don't know, it has come into conversation a lot, like, that I brought up. And it's it's just so complicated because there is things that you can understand, like stress levels and everything like that. Like, you can measure stress of an individual. And, of course, animals, you know, exhibit emotions. But how, how can you just say they, you know, don't have any fear at all? I mean, I think fear to an extent is not necessarily a strictly human emotion because... Typically, you can't just walk up to a moose. The moose is going to do something. It's going to run away. It's going to charge. It's going to, you know, exhibit some sort of defensive behavior. Maybe lack of fear just means they don't have that defensive behavior. Okay. Maybe that's not the greatest word choice. So why, oh, why, Clara? Did Emily spend eight months chopping up deer if this worm causes problems for moose? You gotta find it in the source. (laughs) Well, this nematode does not appear to have a negative effect on deer in a majority of infections. It occurs in quite high rates in white-tailed deer in Nova Scotia. Because it's so debated if this is truly a case of parasite-mediated competition that moose are losing, it's important to keep tabs of the prevalence of this parasite's infection rates in deer as it relates or potentially relates to moose populations. I feel it is significant because in studies looking at historical evidence, they look at hunter reports of these strange and notable symptoms in moose throughout the years, and it has been found that there is not a significant increase in these reports during increases in deer population. This, to me, does not feel like the most accurate representation of the prevalence of this parasite, so adding to this pool of studies using modern, more accurate scientific models is very important. 
In my work with meningeal nematode, I did work on deer, but I also worked with other mammals. But this was my primary focus. Mm-hmm. A deer day for me would look like this. I would go into work, get dressed up in rubber boots, five sizes too big, <laughs> and walk into the wet lab. And on the table, there would be a bunch of garbage bags full of decapitated deer heads. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> Can you guess what the first thing I would do with one of these deer heads would be? First, I would hope you would apologize to the deer. <laughs> And second, you probably have to skin the head. You're close. I would administer two COVID-19 tests. (laughs) One nasal, one oral. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Then I would scalp the deer. (laughs) And then I would cut off its lips. really gruesome we should really like we should put a trigger warning on the <laughs> i would then place the deer head in a clamp and use a hacksaw to remove the top of the skull cap i would then cut off the top of the meninges from either the brain or the skull cap depending on what it's stuck to and then i would flush it with water in a container and look for these worms i would also scoop out the brain with my hand by the way that's how it um that's how i got brain matter on my forehead let's hope she was wearing gloves <laughs> she was okay i would also flush out the brain with water to look for worms in the brain a quarter of the brain would be removed to be tested for mercury and i would then flip the head upside down in the clamp and then saw the front of the jaw off to remove the teeth for aging we would remove all that we could find and put them in an alcohol solution then they would be later examined by someone with much more experience than i have under a microscope Now, this may sound a little bit yucky, and at times it definitely was, but I will say I'm very thankful for this opportunity. This was my first job in the field, and if you are someone like me who maybe doesn't have a lot of relevant volunteer experience going into the job market, and you're someone less like Clara, (laughs) this may be what you end up doing as your first job if you happen to be a biology student. Listen, this is a pretty cool first job, and I would love something like that, (laughs) except I also get, like, super grossed out by, like, dissections. I've done maybe three dissections before. Because I wasn't a biology student in high school. If you're a biology student, you will be doing multiple dissections of all kinds of different things. Yeah. Yeah, but I've done a bird dissection. I've done fish, maybe. I don't know. And I feel like there was one more thing. But I feel like it was the most disgusting thing I've ever done. Like, I almost vomited because it was so gross. (laughs) Like, I have a super weak stomach. So, I don't know. I think it would be really cool to, like, go see and, like, maybe observe. But I would definitely need some warming up to the idea. I think the strangest kind of dissection I ever saw was in my animal bio class. I didn't see it in person. This was just, like, on a video and, like, pictures and stuff. And it was someone had taken a, I want to say it was a chicken, and they had had it laid out so it was just the head And then they had all of the digestive tract laid out, like in a line. Like they had removed everything else from the body but the head and then just had this completely connected digestive tract. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) That is like insane. I know. It's like so weird. That is psychotic behavior. Don't know the purpose. (laughs) I guess just to examine the digestive tract of birds, but it was weird looking. Yeah. So this was working under two honor students with Nova Scotia Natural Resources and Renewables, and the other honor student was working on looking at the reproductive organs of bobcats and fishers. Yeah, I remember you t- like showing me pictures of skin. What was it, bobcats or something? Yeah, because they're hunted for fur. Yeah, so was... when we'd get them, they'd be furless. <laughs> that was disgusting. <laughs>
<laughs> and she always used to be like, oh, I hope it's not bobcats because they're so stinky. They smell so bad. The, my worst day at work was when I want to say the vet college from PEI wanted some hearts and lungs from the bobcats, which meant we had to have them open on the table for longer because we had to not only get the reproductive track out, which was usually, you know, didn't take too long that we could just throw the, <laughs> throw the corpse out the back door. <laughs> but we had to have it open for long enough that we could cut out the entire heart and lungs. And oh my God, it was so bad. <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> I wouldn't wish it on anyone. <laughs> I'll take the deer heads any day over yeah. the bobcats. Yeah. One of the interesting things that I found working here was um, one time when I was dige- digesting, <laughs> one of the times when I was dissecting a fisher sample. The fishers usually have very, for lack of a better term, pronounced outer male organs if they're a male. We usually aren't looking for males. You know, we'd be looking for just the female's reproductive tract. And, uh, but we still have to cut them open to check just in case. And this one had no male parts, no testicles, no penis. It's usually very pronounced. You can yeah. see it's there. Uh, but then we cut it open and there was no female reproductive parts either. We just couldn't find them. Huh. Yeah, so. Moving on, what's next here for moose? This is a pretty complex issue and the answer isn't quite black and white. Some scientists suggested that keeping deer populations at a low through hunting efforts will improve the juvenile mortality rate in moose. But of course, this would only work if in fact higher deer populations were impacting moose infection rates, which again is still very questioned. Another article posed that promoting more movement between these isolated moose populations in Nova Scotia could improve genetic diversity and perhaps could give rise to a resistance to the parasite. But this was also countered by the fact that maybe more movement between the populations could impact the spread of the parasite as well as spread of diseases. The location of the populations, if you're curious, are the Tobiatic region, Chibucto Peninsula, Cobequid Mountains, Picto Anakinish Highlands, and the interior of the eastern shore from the Tangier Grand through Guysboro. There was one interesting study I found, although this was looking at um, agricultural implications of this parasite because it can affect things like goats and horses. In agricultural environments, when trying to curb P. tenuis in goats, it has been found that goats with waterfowl, like housed in the same, you know, yard. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> what is it called? Pen? No. Pen, sure. Area of land? Home. <laughs> Goats homed with waterfowl have improved rates of infection. Somehow without affecting the gastropod population rate, which didn't really make sense to me, but that's what the article said. Yeah, I'm not really sure, but it, it, it in this particular study, it found that Housing goats with waterfowl will improve the infection rates, but not impact the gastropod population. Hmm. Not sure why that happens, but they if, said if it she was works, so. it works. They said it was so. They said it was so. So maybe if we did a better job protecting our waterfowl populations, maybe hey. this could have some kind of an impact hey. on moose. Yeah, that maybe. Was just a thought. When maybe, I... maybe we should try that. Yeah, maybe we should give it a go. <laughs> All right, let's get into some trivia, Clara. Yay! (laughs) Feel free to play along at home. I'll give you guys like a long, silent pause so, you know, you can answer the question before I do. (laughs) Moose are the second largest land mammal in North America. What is the largest? Polar bear. Polar bears are considered marine. Shit. Bison. Wait, give me two guesses. I already gave you two. No, another one. (laughs) 
Uh, grizzly bears. It's the American buffalo. That's a bison. Yeah. I got it right. Yeah. <laughs> you needed another guess. So. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, questions like those are very open-ended. I need like A, B, C, D. <laughs> but then you'd know because you'd know that was the biggest. I mean, maybe you wouldn't. I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't. But I did guess it. Yeah, you did. And Good polar bears are also quite big. They are. And they are marine, but, you know, they do live in North America. Sure do. I consider them marine <laughs> terrestrial. Yeah, I, it's it's a technicality. <laughs> what is an adult female moose called? For reference, a male is a bull. I really should know this. Can I have A, B, C, D? <laughs> no, because you're going to know it once I say it. You're going to be like, how could I have forgotten? Because doe is a female deer. Doe. And that's how a I know. Female <laughs> well, it's not a doe. <laughs> uh, yeah, I give up. It's a cow. I'm so stupid. You're not. Because <laughs> you got the cat, the bull, and apparently a cow. <laughs> what part of the moose is the dewlap? It's a little swiggly thingy on their chin. <laughs> Correct. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Yeah. So I have for my answer the weird fold. <laughs> do you know what the purpose for for a bonus point? Do you know what the purpose of the dewlap is? I don't think anybody does. Nobody does know. It's, Yay! It's, <laughs> they don't know. I don't think it has a purpose. I, I think it's just there. I just think it's like. Is it on females as well? Yes. I think so I think it's bigger on males, but males okay, are also bigger. Okay, maybe it's like a. Look at my big old dewlap. I think that's what hypothesized. <laughs> it's like an attractive thing, you know. <laughs> those females are really finding those big old dewlaps. <laughs> Top material. Now, I've already given the answer to this question in the episode. So, let's see if you're paying attention. What kind of a relationship does P. Tenuis have with deer? Commensalism. It was a bit of a trick question. So it, it's commensalism in low-dose infections, but parasitism in high-dose infections. I was just trying to slip you up, make, make you look stupid. Well, I wasn't going to say neutralism. That's <laughs> it's for not sure. mutualism. <laughs> so the Cape Breton moose are a different subspecies of moose than the mainland Nova Scotia moose. From what province were the Cape Breton moose brought in from? Probably New Brunswick. Incorrect. Do you want to try again? Shit. Quebec. Ontario. Nope. Newfoundland. Nope. British Columbia. Nope. <laughs> Newfoundland and PEI. No, it was good. <laughs> Is there a song? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't know the song. Is it PEI? No. Fuck. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we are an explicit podcast here. Alberta. Yes, it's Alberta. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we have to bring things in from other places? <laughs> what is the purpose of that? Like... Here's my beef, okay? Like, there's really no need to, like, bring, like, animals in from other places that don't serve a purpose to their, like, the ecosystem. I don't know what the purpose that I, like, well, I I don't know that this is true, but I know that this is why they were brought to Newfoundland. It was probably brought in for hunting. <laughs> there were, there were moose there, but they had been hunted out, and so they brought more moose in. So, I mean, it does still fill a niche, but it's also, they were brought in 
yeah. to be haunted. <laughs> and that worked out so great for Newfoundland, didn't it? So, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I don't really go into this episode, but moose are, are a bit overpopulated in Newfoundland. Just a bit. Just a bit. Do you know what the, um, I was going to include this in the quiz section, but I couldn't figure out how to pose it. Do you know what the, like, moose to land ratio is in, in Newfoundland? No, but I can guarantee you there's more moose in Newfoundland than there's probably people. <laughs> <laughs> it's one, it's more than one less than five moose per kilometer squared. Isn't that crazy? That's so many. <laughs> well, you see them all the time walking around in corner rocks. <laughs> yeah, so if you don't know, in Newfoundland, you can walk into the woods blindfolded, spin around three times, throw a rock, and hit a moose. <laughs> you can probably do that in town, too, honestly. <laughs> the amount of times I've walked down the street and had a moose run at me is, like, terrifying. <laughs> The amount of times. It's, it's happened more than once. Yes, it's happened like two times. <laughs> very scary. I'd say. They're huge, man. And, and just in Cornerbrooks. In, in, in Cornerbrooks. Uh, yeah, in other places it's happened <laughs> as well. This is an experience I want to say is unique to Clara, but I don't think that would be correct. No. Anyways, we got off on a bit of a tangent, but we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Yeah, it was super interesting. I've been so excited for Emily to do an episode on her brain worms. (laughs) We're going to post some pictures about this, maybe some pictures that I took. We'll probably add maybe a bit of a trigger warning just because there might be some gross stuff some people aren't aren't too interested in seeing on their feeds. Uh, If you like this episode, make sure to give us a rating. Yeah, five stars. If you didn't like this episode, don't. Or do, but... Give us a high one anyways. <laughs> and make sure to leave a comment. And you can also follow our Instagram page at Right Up Your Allergy Podcast. It's all one word and no uppercases. And if you have any suggestions on episodes or any stories you may want to tell us, you can always you can always email us at ruyapodcast at outlook.com. That's R-U-Y-A podcast at outlook.com. And if you see any stories in the news, we're going to be looking for some stuff for our November edition of Biosphere Bulletin. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we hope it was right right up your algae. algae.